We'll be studying 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. And then I also want you to bookmark Ephesians 3.17. So just kind of turn back there and leave a place mark there. So again, that's 1 Corinthians 11.23 and Ephesians 3.17. So tonight, I hope and I pray that the Lord's going to lead us in better understanding the answers to a couple questions here. Why communion and what it should change in us, what change it, it should motivate. Why do we partake of this practice of communion together every month or more? And what is or ought to be our, our motivation, um, our reasoning behind this practice? And then for how should communion change us? How should, how should the practice deeply and meaningfully affect us? It shouldn't just be an emotional moment here in the dark of the sanctuary as we worship together and then just going right back to the way we were doing whatever we were doing beforehand. Communion should spur on lasting, significant, Holy Spirit-powered improvement, change in our lives. So let's tackle these questions. Let's tackle these comments, uh, concepts, one at a time. So why communion, starting with 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So here we get our first answer right here in verse 23. The practice of communion is from the Lord. Communion, it's, it's from our Lord. It's a command from Christ. It's not optional. At the beginning of verse 24, Jesus says, take, eat. At the end of verse 24, he says, do this. So if he is your Lord, if he is our Lord, we ought to listen to him. We ought to obey him. That's what lordship is. That's what it means. That when he commands, we obey. We hear him. We heed him. We do what he says. It means that we're submitted to his will and that it's our aim, that obeying him is our, our desire, regardless of how well we actually achieve that, despite our, our inability to live anywhere near perfectly. And we should obey regardless of whether we understand why or not. But here in our text, Jesus directly interprets for us. He shows us, he explains, so that we can obey with understanding. The interpretation is included, spelled out right here directly by him. And I, I love that because it's, there's no chance of making a mistake. It's right there. It's clear. It's straightforward. Starting with verse 24 again. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So why communion? For remembrance. Communion should rightly remind us of Jesus, especially of the painful, costly price that he willingly paid in our place. The bread reminds us of his broken body, the juice of his blood poured out. It reminds us that Jesus endured the very worst kind of pain, the very worst kind of punishment that the Romans could come up with at the time. Horrible hurt, beating and scourging, the crown of thorns, the nails, the cross, even though he had done nothing deserving of such brutality. Why did he endure it when he had the power to stop it at any time? The supernatural power to stop it. He could have called down legions of angels to, to just tear him up. 
but he did it because there's no other way that we can be saved. He suffered what we deserve. Our sentence, the sentence of our sin is death, of eternity apart from him. But it should be us suffering and, and dying and not him. So why did he endure it? He, he endured it because he loves us. He loves us so much that he stood in our place. So he willingly paid the painful price of our redemption. He died so that we can live. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So why communion as a proclamation of his love, of his death? We don't just remember, we proclaim. He has a promise. He's promised us eternal life. He's promised us that he's returning, that he's coming back to take us to where he is so we can spend eternity with him. So we should rightly partake of communion, continuing this practice, continuing this, this proclamation until he comes back for us, for his saints, for his church, for his bride, because we're his beloved. He willingly laid down his life for us, and he's coming back for us soon so we can be with him forever. So we ought to remember, we ought to proclaim this truth that changes everything. It brings us to our second question, change. What change should it impart in us? When we remember, when we proclaim Christ, how can we not be changed? How can we approach him and remember what he's done for us with calloused hearts? How can we not be challenged as we dwell upon our Savior's deep love? It's a question that I often wrestle with. How can we not change when, when we hear, when we're washed with the water of his word? Time and time again, how can we remain calloused or cold-hearted? How can we stay checked out or unchanged as we're remembering, as we're proclaiming, as we're practicing communion? How can we not be convicted? How can we not be chastened? How can our hearts not burn within us? The answer is right in our text for all to see. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So it has to do with the manner in which we partake of communion. So what does it mean to partake of communion in an unworthy manner? Obviously, none of us are worthy of his sacrifice. None of us are righteous on our own. So this is not saying that we earn our own way. The, the first answer for how communion ought to change us is right here. It's, it's in verse 27. The worthiness is a question of justification. It addresses guilt before God. In the next verse, 20, verse 29 it's clarified for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. So communion demands discernment, belief or denial, discernment of his loving sacrifice, why he made it, what it entails, his motivation. So the question is, are we going to discern? Are we going to believe what communion rightly reminds us of and proclaims? Do we really believe that sin separates? Do we see the seriousness of our sin or do we just brush it off? Do we see that it was our sin that Jesus suffered for to justify us and make us just as if we never sinned? Or in our heart of hearts, when we go home, do we really think that it's, it's no big deal that Jesus died for us? So we just go home, we do whatever we want, we willfully trample grace, not really remembering at all. That's why he calls us to remember. We know salvation requires both profession and belief. Empty words don't mean anything. Romans 10, 8 through 11 tell us, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith with which, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So do we really believe that he had to die in our place? Do we really believe that he rose to life? Do we really believe that he's coming back? Because while communion ought to change our walk, genuine belief will change our walk. It'll change the way in which we walk. Not because we're worthy, because he's worthy. Our, our true beliefs, when you think about it, they're behind every choice, every decision, every consideration that we make. It's our beliefs that drive us. It's our beliefs that weigh into why we do the things that we do. So do we really believe on him or are we just pretending to proclaim at times? Proclaiming that Christ is Lord only as long as it doesn't cost us anything. Only as long as we don't have to change anything or make any sacrifice or make any choices or live any differently. Just paying him lip service less than skin deep is partaking in an unworthy manner. It's saying that we serve Jesus. It's saying Lord, Lord, without it actually meaning anything. To which Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why does he say this? Because to call him Lord without believing upon him as your Lord is, is mocking and denying the truth that he laid down his life because he loves us. He rose to life because he is the savior. He's the son of God. He's the soon returning king. He did exactly what he said he would as proof of his power. So when we rightly practice communion, we remember, we proclaim this truth. An example for us, what, parents, I mean, think about what happens to the child who approaches you with a mocking bad attitude. Are they going to get mercy from you? No. With, if they come with rolling eyes, if they're daring you to do something about it, there are consequences, there's correction. So it makes sense what he says about practicing communion in an unworthy manner, right? How much more when we approach our perfectly just, all-powerful God and judge? Like we, we don't, as parents, we don't always do the right, the right thing. We don't always address the, the sin that's present. But at the end of verse 27, it, it tells us what happens when we approach him in an unworthy manner, a guilty verdict. And verse 30 warns of potential weakness and sickness and even death. Now, I want you to note that the word here is not saying that that's the only source of sickness. It's not saying that if we believe hard enough, we're not going to get sick. That's not what the word is saying here. Um, obviously, my family's at home sick. So. Um, but communion does, it demands discernment of, of his love, of the worthiness of his sacrifice, right? Belief or denial in Christ. So you should have a bookmark here in Ephesians 3, 17. So we're looking back a little bit from where Eddie's teaching us, and we'll, we'll see the, the final point provides our motivation for why it is that we want to have our worthy walk. But looking back at Ephesians 3, 17, and this is Paul pleading. I still hear some pages turning. All right, Ephesians 3.17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. That's what he wants us to discern, his intent, his motivation behind laying down his life, why he went to the cross willingly for us to be drawn by his love, to be drawn by his kindness, that we would discern his great love for us and believe upon him and be saved, that we would begin to grasp the extent of his love, 
his whole motivation for purchasing our pardon, for paying the price that we rightly owe, for taking our place. It's not like we have to fully understand God's nature, though, or his love to partake of communion, to, to receive grace. In fact, Ephesians 3.19 tells us that it's beyond us, that his love is so vast, so deep, that it surpasses knowledge entirely. But as we prepare to partake of communion, can we cry out, even, even in our, our unbelief, can we cry out as the desperate father did in Mark 29, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Can we look to Jesus knowing of his loving kindness in part, not fully understanding, but seeing the love that he has for us, seeing the love that prompted him to lay down his life. That's, that's how he draws us in the first place, right? So that we can receive grace through faith, so that we can love him as our Lord, rightly discerning, rightly grabbing hold of him and not letting go because we believe. And communion, every time we take of it, should remind us, it should help us to proclaim his love. It should help us discern it so that we make choices accordingly. Let's get back to the example of a guilty child for a moment approaching their parent. Like obviously the, the willfully rebellious child is going to face consequences and correction. We've, we've covered that. But how about the child who insists that they've done no wrong? That says, you know, I did everything I was supposed to perfectly mom or perfectly dad. Like really, like we know, let's walk through the clear instructions that you trample, that you ignored. Like every, every child is gonna sin. We're all gonna sin. How about the child who calls out this, their sibling and says, oh, you know, they're, they're worse than me. Like, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about how bad Caleb was today, seriously. All right, does trying to deflect blame or lower the bar do any good? No, it doesn't. How about the child who insists upon ignorance, who says, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to eat Caleb's candy cane. It was just sitting there. Where is it written, you shall not eat your brother's candy cane? What, when did you tell me not to do it, right? They, they know better. We know better. Our conscience, our God-given conscience, and for those that believe, the, the Spirit convicts us. Even the Spirit works on those that don't believe yet to convict them as well. Looking at verse 31, so this is uh, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one, 31. And you can keep your finger in Ephesians. We'll go back there in a second, too. So communion ought to remind us of this fact as well, that we're guilty apart from him. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. That's, that's his goal for us. That's his will for us, that we wouldn't be condemned, that we would chasten ourselves, that we would judge ourselves guilty and then grasp onto his grace. Communion reminds us to accept chastening rather than insisting on condemnation, to realize and rightly judge ourselves guilty rather than just making all sorts of excuses, to know our wretchedness and repent, that we can accept his love and mercy and grace. How much differently do things go for the genuinely repentant child? Way differently, right? Don't you show grace as a parent? And God's the perfect parent. For the child who approaches humbly knowing that they're fully wrong instead of rebelliously, are, are they gonna get the spanking? Probably not. All right, it, it should be much more than shame or sorrow or sadness or, or simply saying we're sorry. When we come before Jesus knowing through and through just how much we've messed up or transgressed or broken the law, when we come to him fully admitting our sin, throwing ourselves upon his mercy, 
knowing, believing, trusting, hoping upon his power and love because he laid down his life and took it up again. That's what taking communion rightly reminds us of. That's what it proclaims, that his grace is greater than our guilt. In Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. So letting him lovingly chasten and cleanse and clothe us with his righteousness, that's, that's the truth, that's the promise, that's the proclamation of communion. Relationship with God, closeness with Christ, because he laid down his life to pay our way, to redeem us as his own. So who are we to reject his chastisement or his correction or say it's not merited? He gives it gently in love for our good, and the alternative is to insist on the condemnation that we rightly deserve. Listen to Paul's plea from 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2. It, it ought to be our plea together to all. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you haven't yet believed upon Jesus as risen Lord and Savior, today's the day. It's the day of salvation. To tell Jesus you want him to be your Lord and to mean it because you take him at his word. Believing Jesus is who he says he is. Believing he can and will save because he said he will, because he's already proved his power by his resurrection. If we confess and believe, we will be saved. And we can have communion today, remembering, proclaiming the pure, cleansed relationship we get to have with God. And for those that have received grace, let us not receive the grace of God in vain. Let's remember tonight, and then let's not remember tonight and then trample and reject tomorrow. Let's not proclaim now and then promptly ignore when sin's knocking on the door. This brings us to the third way that communion ought to change us, through self-examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We should examine ourselves. We should see ourselves as Jesus sees us, as beloved children, learning and growing, chastised but not condemned. This self-examination is seeing our own sin for what it is, and not making excuses or sweeping it under the rug, but bringing it to God, so we can, not so that we can be ashamed or beat ourselves up, but so that we can let God heal us and teach us and cleanse us so that he can give us direction and correction to strengthen us, to listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit in every believer saying, you, sh you shouldn't say that, you shouldn't do that. Or if you have, apologize and make it right. This self-examination is considering how does our Lord want us to live in his power? Ephesians 3.20 tells us, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The answer is that as his church, in his power, we, we ought to glorify him. How well, how well did you glorify him today, or this week, or, or this month? As you self-examine and let him show you, was was that thing by his spirit or was it by the flesh? Was it the old man or was it the new man as Eddie's been teaching us? Because we all know that there's nothing good in us apart from God. So there's, there's much to repent of and pour out to him, way more than the, the once a month that we practice communion. 
Now look at the passages surrounding his instruction to examine ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 11, look at verses 27 and 29. He talks about taking in an unworthy manner. We're not supposed to stop at mere self-examination, but we're supposed to apply it to a worthy walk. Again, none of us are worthy of his sacrifice, none are righteous on our own, but when we discern and remember the extent of his sacrifice for our sake and his motivation behind it, because of his love for us, how can we not come away acutely aware that he's worthy of our worthy walk? It's not because our walk is worthy, it's because he's worthy. Communion declares that he's worthy of our every desire to live our lives to glorify him. So when we rightly partake of communion, we, it ought to produce a change in us. We ought to want a worthy walk. This is the deep and heartfelt cry of all who are truly focused on Christ deep down. Ephesians 4.1, you can turn forward to there. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Guys, listen, get this. We should live, we should want to live the life that our Lord has called us to. In consideration of his love, in consideration of his mercy and his grace poured out to us, as we take communion, consider what he's done for us. Consider the cost that he's willingly paid. Consider his character. Consider how he sent his spirit to dwell in you, with you, in close communion to empower you. Consider that he hasn't left us alone but strengthens us every single moment. He doesn't leave or forsake us. Consider his love. And in light of all that, he's worth it. He's fully worthy of a worthy walk. Not because we're earning our way, but because he's worthy, because we know his character. If you're not convinced by me, listen to just a few of the many ways that God appeals to us in his word with this truth. Colossians 2.6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Is there any question about God's desire for us? for our walk, his will, is that we would walk in a way that's worthy of him. So then we should apply what we're reading, right? We should apply what Eddie, what you study, hopefully as you're reading ahead in Ephesians, the worthy walk, how we would walk out worthy and what Eddie's gonna teach us. We should, this is our motivation behind all that, that we're gonna learn. He wants, he empowers our worthy walk. And as we obey, we, we get to know him better. As we allow him to help us walk and live for him in Holy Spirit strength, bearing good fruit, not only do we glorify him in doing so, but we grow closer to him as we walk out the, the way that he wants us to walk, in knowledge, in love. I mean, imagine that when we stop loving the flesh, when we stop living in the flesh, when we stop loving sin, and instead pour our lives and our love out to him, doesn't it make sense that we would know him all that much more? to be in closer communion with him, it makes total sense. He's fully good. He deserves our good. So how could we not love him and love doing the good work that he's prepared, especially for us? 
I mean, we, we, can, we can be that kid who digs in our heels. We can be the kid that refuses to walk at all. You know, the kid that you're, you're dragging along, kicking and screaming, and they're just like, you know, no, I don't want to go in total rebellion. If, if that's our walk with the Lord, we need some serious self-examination tonight as, as we take communion. Um, can't we also ruin our walk with horrible attitudes? Yeah. Listen to his instructions. Look at the, the end of Ephesians uh, 4, verse 1. He says, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Does that sound like a kid thrashing around on the ground? Absolutely not. So as we prepare to take communion, consider our attitudes, consider our hearts. And if today is the, your first day walking with Jesus as Lord, Take heart because we're, we're new creations in him. We're cleansed. We're made new by his blood shed for our sin. And for all of us who love him as Lord, we, we ought to be grateful for his mercies, which are new every single morning. We ought to be grateful that he's faithful to complete the good work that he's begun in us, which is the, the lifetime sanctifying work until the, the day that we get to be with him. So let's desire to walk worthy in him. In a moment, we're going to glorify God together with six more songs, um, songs of praise, of worship, of remembrance, of proclamation and self-examination. As we do, worship in understanding. Pay attention to the words that we're pouring out to God. And as we praise him, also prepare your heart before him. Let him show you the concrete ways that he would have you walk worthy of him the opportunities to, to glorify him that he's pointing out to you that maybe you might rather pass on. Don't pass on him. The choices, the decisions that you're considering, that you're weighing without considering how he would have you walk. The things that maybe you're pursuing in place of his best plan for you. Then let him change you, let him chasten you into his well-pleasing, repentant child instead of the kid with the bad attitude or the, the tattletale pointing the finger at someone else or the willfully disobedient child. Let him remind you that you're his beloved child, redeemed by his blood and his body. Then as you're led in your own timing, um, during those six songs, um, receive the bread and the cup on your own. Just go, there's a table back there. It's prepared in prepackaged containers. You can make your way to the table in the back and then find a quiet spot on your own and prayerfully partake of communion on your own. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your perfect love for us, Lord. I thank you that no matter how many times we make the wrong choice, we turn our back on you, we deny you, Lord. You're faithful to forgive. And I just pray that you would give us an awareness tonight of your, your perfect love for us, Lord, your, the magnitude of that, Lord, of all that you sacrificed, all that you laid down in our place, Lord. And I... I just pray that you would help us to examine ourselves by your spirit, Lord, that you would show us the, the changes that we ought to make and the ways in which we can walk more worthy of you, Lord. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.